Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. So uh, today, I have a little announcement. <laughs> so, so I've kind of hinted around at this. I've told you that we you know, have a, an offer on a building and then a contract. I kind of let it slip in the Christmas services. We put, put a contract on a building. Well, uh, today, I'm going to tell you where that building is. We <laughs> so, and, and, and really, here's the deal. Everyone needs a place to call home. That's just a human idea. Everybody needs a place to call home. And we've been a family for nine and a half years almost. And that's really amazing. And the first few years, we, we moved like four times in four years. It was crazy. And we we're moving all around like the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it was really, it was a deal. And we were following the cloud everywhere. And, and it was really unsettling. And whenever you move, there is an unsettling a little bit, you know. So, but, but I, I believe there's something powerful about permanence. Finding a permanent place from which to launch all kinds of ministry. And so today, it's my pleasure to announce that we are purchasing the church building called Austin Cathedral, which Austin Cathedral is pastored by Bill Hart, and uh, I met Bill a few um, months ago, and we started talking about this idea. And um, some of you are like, what's Austin Cathedral? Well, do you remember the worship night that we went to, and we, we kind of used their building to have our worship night uh, last semester? And here it is. We, were, we, we went to that building, and I, I will tell you, every person who was there was like, whoa, something's going on here. There was like something happening spiritually there that was unique and that was interesting as we went through the night. There's Pastor Bill, and Pastor Bill's been doing ministry in this city for 35 years and has contributed to the prayer movement in the city. Um, he, he believes that God told him, he spoke to him, go to Austin, I want you to break the principalities and powers over this city. And they had like a six or seven, I can't remember, uh, a, maybe it was an eight or nine year prayer meeting at 6 a.m. every morning. Think about that. And that church has been vibrant and, and just a beautiful part of the community in Austin. And, um, and they're coming to a new season. And Pastor Bill is not retiring. He still has more left in him. But it's time for him to relinquish the burden of the, that senior pastor role. He needs freedom and flexibility to do some other things that God's put in his heart. So he told me, he said, I'm going to come. You guys buy this building. I'm going to come to your church, and I'm going to tell all my people to come to your church. And so his leadership team, and they're, so they're joining our family at one chapel, which is pretty cool. And so, and, and so what will happen, I've told them that you're pretty nice. Um, only a few weird people among us. Um, no, you're all weird. And so, um, so I, <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I, I said, okay, well, let's, let's figure out how that works. And, and, and so we're kind of in a process of, of working that out. We will um, close on the building on March 31st, all right? So which is awesome. But then there will be a period of renovation on the building to make sure. Did we show the building stuff? Yeah. So this is, this is the building. And it's, it's, um, it has some great, it's great bones. It has great uh, opportunity for us. We need to make it fit uh, us and we need to we need to kind of retool it for the next 10 or 20 years of ministry okay so it's going to need that and we're going to be working on that look at this it's seven and a half acres seven and a half acres which is awesome we can have all kinds of picnics and stuff out back there is really awesome so incredible there's so many ways we can utilize this building in ways we couldn't use this building you gotta you gotta realize that there's something when you get a permanent place and and the the I mean, the place is beautiful. Look at all those trees. It is, there's like a real spirit there that I'm really excited about. And um, it's right around the corner. It's right around the corner from Barton Creek Square Mall, right? Which is where One Chapel started. So we're kind of coming full circle from, from starting in the movie theaters at One, Ch at One Chapel started in uh, the Barton Creek Square Mall at those AMC theaters. And, and here's the distance. It's 4.4 miles from this location right here, which, by the way, is miraculous to find a building that can house us just f within a five-mile radius of this building. That's a miracle. And it's also a miracle that we can find a building that can house us within a five-mile radius that we can afford. And, and so there's a, there's a miracle going on here, which is super cool. Five minutes closer, probably, for those of you coming from the north. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe almost five minutes longer for those of you coming from the west, so it's not too far. But, but, but it's just, it's around up on Mopac and then around by the mall. And then, um, and so I'm super excited about this because I think you have to realize that when you get a permanent place, number one, I think something spiritual happens. Like, like there's something about territory. There's something about a church saying, no, we're here. We've been moving around. We've been committed, but we are here to stay. And so we're going to launch more campuses out of this building. We're going to have more access to 24 hours a day. I, I don't know if you realize this, but we can't even play music in this building during the day because of the people upstairs. And we, our job is to serve and love people, so we do. We don't play music. We play it really quiet. <laughs> There's so many limitations on this building. This building is more than twice the square footage of what we have here at Monterey Oaks, which is pretty amazing. And, um, and so we're going to go through a little bit of a process of renovating. I'll talk to you about that in the coming weeks because I think, I think we're going to have to kind of move forward a, a little bit in, a, in, a, in our giving to, to really do everything we want to do, and we'll talk about that as we, as we move forward. But here's the thing I want to tell you. Their last service is the 29th of March, and so they will begin to uh, really hang out with us uh, after that. Some of them have already started infiltrating, and... Uh, <laughs> And, you, and, and so we had, we, had, we had a couple people came on the all-night prayer meeting, and they, they came to check us out, and what, the, what are these weirdos doing with all-night prayer meeting? <laughs> they didn't think we were weirdos. They thought it was awesome. And so um, they, th there, there's a process here by which we're going to worship together. We're going to do some praying together um, to make sure that we can come together as a family. 
Because I want you to understand that Jesus prayed a prayer in John 17. It It is our namesake, one chapel. Jesus said, Father, make them one like you and I are one. And then he said, there's a reason for that oneness. It's not just so everybody can be happy. Everybody can get along. Everybody be nice. That's good, but there's a more strategic reason. He said, Father, make them one like you and I are one so the world will believe that you sent me. There is a strategic evangelistic idea in unity. And I think God's giving us another opportunity to express unity with another church, with lots of churches in our city, obviously, but with another church where they come together and they, they, you know, we have a little different uh, culture than they do or style than they do in some cases. Doesn't matter. We can be a family and we can all agree together under the banner of Jesus Christ that he is Lord and he is sovereign and we're going to worship him as a family. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up your arms, right? Not, you don't have to do it now. (laughs) You're so obedient though. I just love it. Like, that just, that just, like, fed my soul in an interesting way. I don't know. Like, they, like they do what I tell them. That's so awesome. Okay, everybody get up and dance. Just kidding, just kidding. Not ready for that. So, so listen, I want you to figuratively open your arms to them. Now, here's what this, here's, here's really the serious thing about it. It's hard to put together two congregations. We're the host. We're the hospitable ones. And they're surrendering their house for us to fix up. So there's a deal there. I want you to open your heart. I want you to open your arms. I want you to, I want you to embrace them. I want you to lean in during this next season of One Chapel. Because not only is it a deal for them, but it's a deal for us. Whenever you move as a church, people get lost in the shuffle. They get lost in the shuffle. If you haven't seen somebody for a while, you call them. You lean in. Don't lean out. This is a season for leaning in, and we'll, we'll, we'll get done with our renovations as soon as we can, um, and then we will move in probably somewhere in the summer, and then we will kind of have a grand opening um, first, second Sunday of September, which is our 10-year anniversary. That's pretty awesome. So... Uh, I wanted to tell you about that, and I wanted you to pray, and I wanted you to welcome Pastor Bill and the rest of uh, Austin Cathedral as they kind of go into this next journey and be really sensitive and be open-hearted, all right? Should we pray, and let's study the scriptures? Come on, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for life. We thank you for how you have given us everything we need for life, that you are more than enough. And here you are providing us a place uh, once again to worship you, and we, we're, we are aware, we can, we can worship anywhere. We can worship in a school, or we can worship in a movie theater, or we can worship in a commercial office building. Lord, we can, we can gather anywhere that we need to, but we thank you for a permanent place from which to launch people 
into ministry, where people, where babies can be baptized, where, where people can be married, where people can, can join together in a new way to do uh, ministry into that neighborhood that's all around that church. Neighbors who need Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us the mission, uh, that you would seal that mission in our hearts as we look towards this new building, that it's not just a building, but there's a vision behind that building that you want to unleash in our city. And we thank you for this, and we look to you for it. Father, we pray that you'd open up the scriptures right now and let them come alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've been on this series called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. It's based on the book by Pete Grigg, and a brilliant book. I highly encourage you, pick it up. And each of our lessons have been have kind of found their, their outline in, in his book. And, um, and today, we're gonna continue that outline because that outline has to do with the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is this pattern that Jesus gave us to pray. And so I want us to start by saying the Lord's Prayer. Everybody, come on with me together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as we look at this prayer, we're peeling back the layers into four movements. There's four kind of paced rhythms of this prayer that I want us to grab a hold of, and they're represented by the acronym PRAY. I know, brilliant, right? PRAY stands for these words. Pause is the first word. You remember last week we talked about pausing and how hard it is to do in our busy culture. The next word is rejoice. Because there's so many things that God has done for you and for me that we ought to understand who he is as our father. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. And then the third word is ask because there's nothing so humble as asking for help, recognizing that we need help. You ask and then yield is the final word. Yield because God's ways are so much better than ours. It's always good to yield to him and yield to his purpose. And these are the four sections of the Lord's Prayer. Pause, rejoice, ask, yield. And there's something so good that we can learn from this. And, and so as we, as we take a moment today, I wanna talk about the first line. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because I think it's easy to just skim through the opening line of the Lord's Prayer as if some, it's some kind of pleasantly, pleasantry. <laughs> some kind of um, like a heavenly handshake. Hi God, how you doing? Uh, maybe a, a ding-dong at the door uh, before we get down to business of what we really want. But nothing could be further from the truth on this prayer because here's the deal. The way we view God affects everything about everything. The way you view God affects everything about everything. And so we gotta get this idea down of what who God is before we launch into this thing of prayer. And the primary purpose of our lives, according to the, the first statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's an enjoyment that people have lost in prayer. 
every line of the Lord's Prayer is sort of preempted as you read through it or is primed by the opening words of adoration, which are, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When Jesus told his disciples to address God in this way, they would have been surprised for sure. They knew that their scriptures occasionally compared God to a father, but they never would have dared to address him directly in such familiar and familial terms before. Jesus was inviting his disciples to step into a level of intimacy that they'd never imagined possible. In fact, this is the very reason why they asked him to teach them to pray. He was praying and they realized it was not like theirs. Notice that Jesus did not say, when you pray, say, creator or savior, or deliverer, or healer, although God is all those things. Instead, Jesus uses a term that defines the relationship, that defines what this is all about, and the address part of this phrase is an important part of prayer. It's an important part of this prayer. It identifies who we're praying to and (laughs) distinguishes prayer from worry. You ever talk to yourself about things going on? Just talking to yourself, this okay? Okay, I, I, want, I want to encourage you to put Father right in front of those worries and turn it into prayer. Father, I'm facing this and this is what's happening. This is what's going on. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I need to do this. I'm not sure. The address distinguishes worry from prayer. What you're talking about, what you're saying. The word Father is the Greek word Pater, which means nourisher, protector, upholder, and source of life. Everybody say source of life. In other words, all things originate from God. They don't originate from you or me or anybody else. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. It's a powerful idea if you can get it down. See, our Heavenly Father is the source of all provision, all compassion, all love, everything that you could ever need. And here's the point. This must be the reality from which we pray and interact with God. If we don't get to this reality, we start begging him for stuff. We get confused about what he really thinks about us. I don't know about your family, but in my family, we all tend to have some nicknames. You know, we, we, we do little nicknames, and, and my, my kids call each other names, but those aren't nicknames. That's, those, are, those are bad. I, I, I've made a habit of calling my kids, uh, since they were really small, Peanut. But I don't know what it is, Peanut. Hey, Peanut. It's kind of fun. Um, Grace is uh, our only girl. Her name is, so we, she, we call her Gracie Lou a lot. Gracie Lou, I love you. It's just a... It's just a little, little thing. Uh, uh, Taylor was Tay-Tay for a long time. He's since grown out of that. <laughs> Zachary developed this weird uh, d- nickname, and it was Schmackery. I don't know what it was. It was just like, is it Schmackery? How you doing? I don't know. Uh, Ethan is E-boy, and uh, Owen is O. <laughs> he was a surprise. <sighs> but... I want you to notice that these nicknames, these nicknames all kind of provide this atmosphere where what is talked about, whatever is talked about is in the context of a really close relationship. 
of a really connected family relationship. Now, if I hear Amy call out all three of any one of their names, right? Like they all have three names. If she says, Zachary Ross Parsley, I know he's in big trouble. Grace Elizabeth Parsley, oh my gosh, we're, in, we're, we're having a, a deal in the house. I know Grace is about to get a lecture, right? It's a, different, it's a different thing. But there's something about the address of these names. The address and what it contextualizes, how it helps us understand prayer. It, it makes prayer more significant and meaningful knowing the relational fabric of what God is trying to welcome us into. One of my favorite theologians is Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard wrote many books and he translates the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer in the book, The Divine Conspiracy, which I highly recommend to all of you. It's one of the best um, books on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but Dallas Willard translates the first phrase this way. He says, it's our Father, the one in the heavens, meaning our Father in relation to his creation and earthly family. And he goes on to say, this prayer orients our lives around God's. We see ourselves situated in the family of God across time and space with an opportunity to see God face to face, is what he says. And then he goes on and he, and he has this little side comment that I want you to see. I think it's very interesting. He says, unfortunately, our Father who art in heaven has come to mean our Father who is far away and much later. In many translations, the heavens are erroneously translated heaven, but heavens sees God as far out as imaginable, but also right down to the atmosphere around our heads. That's heavens. The heavens are everywhere. This is the first of the heavens right around the space around your body. This wording of the plural robs the wording in, in the model prayer of the sense Jesus intended. That sense is our Father always near us. The point of the identifier is significant. He, he is in the heavens and is over all as the heavens are surrounding the earth, even down to the very air around our heads. He's over it all. So God, our Father, is all around us, very near and very present. Do you see it? The problem for most of us in our American culture is we don't really understand what a father, a loving father looks like because many, many of our fathers were distant or unloving. And I, I mean, think about it. You got 50% of the marriages ending in divorce. That means that there's a mark, a wound within that family that's challenging to deal with. 25% of the families who stayed together, I mean, I think we can pretty safely say are dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, just look around. A um, lot of dysfunctional families. And then you got about 25% more that might have some idea of what relational health looks like. That's one in four families in the culture in which we live. That's a problem. In 28 years of pastoral ministry, I've come to see so many father wounds 
The father wound is dramatic, difficult to get over. It creates trauma in the heart of a child. And in all this time in, in ministry, I've come to the conclusion that most people's biggest problem with prayer is God or their view of him. They envision him scowling, perpetually disapproving. They envision him in, invariably disappointed with them. They, they see him as needing to be placated or persuaded in prayer. If that's how you picture God, then I don't blame you for trying to avoid his gaze. And there, there's, there's a bunch of ways that people see God inaccurately. Three, maybe of the most dominant ways they see God is um, the clockmaker who winds up the world and lets it go. Totally detached, just letting it unfold. Some people see God as the absentee landlord. <laughs> you know, the absentee landlord is, he never appears until it's time to pay up. <laughs> and then if you don't pay, you're in really big trouble, you're gonna get thrown out. Some people see God as uh, the drill sergeant. The drill sergeant, like, he's gonna break you down with his orders. If you don't obey, he's gonna crush you. None of these are good pictures for God. Jesus says something completely different. And we find in Luke 15, Jesus telling one of the most famous and definitive stories in the whole Bible about who God is. Luke 15, it's the prodigal son. Now, we'll start in verse 11. You can follow along with me on the screen. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered, everybody say squandered. That's a nice word. He, he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, some of you know the story, and you just decided to start checking your phone as I'm reading. Don't, don't do that. Stay right here. Stay right here. Read the story with me. Let the story reveal something new to you because it's a multifaceted story. Verse 14, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. It's a great story. 
Jesus makes it clear in this most famous story, the parable of the prodigal son, that the God to whom we pray is extravagantly kind. A father who comes running toward us with arms flung wide. Go ahead, open your arms wide. (laughs) That's what God's doing for you and with you. He's running toward you with arms flung wide whenever we approach him. Wherever we've been and whatever we've done, his arms are open. He assures us that God, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the creator of the cosmos, the sustainer of all things is on our side. He's on our side. He's on your side. He's not against you. He's for you. I can hear it. I can hear it in your head. It's echoing, and I can hear it in the room. Well, you don't know what I've done, Pastor Ross. I don't know if he really is on my side. The truth of the matter is, just about all of us must wipe the face of our own dad, our own father, off of the face of God. You got to do it, even if you had a good dad, because that good dad was still imperfect. That 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 dad had ways of showing his humanness that actually live in you now. (laughs) No matter how much you try not to be like your dad, you're going to be him. Thanks, dad. None of us, listen, none of us have perfect fathers. All of us got to deal with what God gave us. And here's the thing, it takes time for your view of God sometimes to change because the imprint of that father figure that you grew up with is so deep. But I want you to notice in this story, and I want us to take this out of the story, the prodigal son saw himself. See, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how he saw his father. I think we can unpack that a little bit here, but I want to I highlight that he saw himself as an orphan first. I think he insulted his father, right, by asking for an early inheritance, in effect saying, I wish you were dead and gone so I could have my money. But since you're not, give it to me. Give it to me now. I want what I want. That's an orphan mindset. I need what I need now. I got to get all I can now because I don't know what's next. And I think, I think if we could think about it in spiritual terms, so many Christians... They think like an orphan. They think like practical orphans who instead of praying about what's going on in their life, they fend for themselves. They try to get things done themselves and act like everything they have is theirs to do with whatever they want to do with it. When it's not really true. You don't have to fend for yourself. You do have to be a good steward. You do have to, I mean, God's in the, training business just like a father, just like a dad, only he does it better than any dad you've ever known. But I think we, we sometimes embrace this orphan mindset and, then, and that, that shows up in prayer or in the absence of prayer. But then the prodigal son started to see himself in the story as a servant. He sees himself as a servant. He returned to his father but didn't see himself as worthy of being a son. So many of us 
because of our woundedness or our history. We live like this. His plan, the prodigal son's plan, was to live in the house as a servant. (laughs) So I'm not your son anymore, I'm a servant, where he would enjoy second-class amenities. So many of us as Christians live with a second-class mindset. I wish I could be as good as Pastor Ross. Number one, I'm not that great. Number two, everybody's got dirty laundry. Everybody's got issues. Everybody's got history. Everybody's got woundedness. And we have to come to our loving Heavenly Father to rid ourselves of these things, to offer them to Him, and He takes them. And so when our identity is wrapped up in a sense of unworthiness, hear me now, when our identity is wrapped up in a sense of unworthiness due to our failures or our history or our past, we'll never be able to receive the love that God wants for us. So we see ourselves just as a slave or a servant, not a son who is deeply loved or a daughter who is deeply cared for. Finally, the prodigal son started to see himself as a son. He finally gets there and he has a speech already and he's ready to do it and he starts into it but the father doesn't even listen and he throws a party and he wraps his arms around him and he, and he gives him the robe and the ring and the shoes and the prodigal son is welcomed back as a son who was lost but now is found a son who was dead but is alive again and the heavenly father is just this way because I want you to notice something in the story. Notice something profound here. His father always saw him as a son. (laughs) He never saw him any other way. There was never any other way that he saw him. He never treated him with anything except compassion and love. Would you think about the story? Think about this dramatic grace being poured out on that kid who was all messed up and he comes to his dad and said, I want, my, I, want, I want what's coming to me. I want you to notice, the father gave it to him. You want to mess up your life? You want to, you want to make a mess of everything? God will let you. He, he will. He won't. He's never going to force himself on you. He's going to give. He's a good father, and he'll bless you even if you take it and mess with it and make a mess of yourself with it. He wants to train you how not to make a mess of everything he gives you. He does. Because he loves you. And this nature of love in our Heavenly Father is always for us and never against us. Jesus gives us another picture of what the Father looks like when he said in Matthew 7, 11, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Everybody say more. How much more? In fact, a lot more is what Jesus is saying. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Listen, the deeper we receive our identity as dearly loved children, the greater our desire is going to be to spend time with him. To spend time with our Father in prayer. We'll start telling him everything and dare to ask him anything. I've got five kids, and I've been asked a lot of crazy stuff over my life. Somehow in their little minds, they think I can do anything. 
It is crazy for me, not crazy for God. But there's an innocence in my kids when they ask me to do stuff that's so, that's so like out of this world that I can't do. But there's something really powerful when that innocence begins to infiltrate our identity as a loved daughter or a loved son with God to dare to ask him for anything. It's amazing. He's lovingly attentive to our needs, always pleased to see you. If you don't remember anything else from this message, I want you to remember these few words. When you leave and you're talking over lunch or you're going, watching the game this afternoon and you're, and you, I want you to remember this phrase and it's gonna ring in your head, always pleased to see you. Five little words that will change how you pray. Always pleased to see you. He's not standing there with his arms and tapping his toe. Okay, where you been? That's the picture that, most of us would have of the father in the story. But instead, the father ran, opened his arms. And even the older brother, who did, he didn't, we see in the story, the older brother didn't know who he was or how much his father loved him. Check this out. In verse 25, we pick up the story again. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? I think the older son was thinking to himself, you gave away his inheritance. Are you going to give him mine too? I want you to notice what the father says. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. That's why you can take whatever God gives you and just make a mess of it if you want to. He'll let you. He'll give it to you. But he wants to show you what his plan and purpose is. He says, everything I have is yours. The son didn't even know this, but verse 32 says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because the, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. Listen, the older son's false view of God, of his own father, of his own dad, he even describes himself as slaving for him. He had a mindset of obligation and duty that so many people have in prayer. I gotta do this, I have to. Listen, there is discipline in prayer. We've already discussed it. We will discuss it later on in this series. But listen, you gotta get the address right. <laughs> the address of this prayer is an all-loving, wondrous, beautiful, amazing, merciful, heavenly Father. You gotta get that so you can begin to approach him in the right way because listen, family, one chapel, Prayer will never be enjoyable until you see God as a loving father. It'll just never be enjoyable. It'll never be fun. It'll never be an engaging thing. It will never feel safe. You'll miss out on so much that God has for you. We'll miss, you'll miss out on the most important thing, which is a relationship. 
a relationship in prayer. And it is from this relational identity as a son or a daughter from which we can understand then the second part of the, the address, the second part of the prayer, the first phrase, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify, to regard as special or sacred. This is a special relationship. A biblical scholar, William uh, Barclay, uh, he says it this way. He says, this saves the idea of the fatherhood of God from all sentimentality and sets down in unmistakable terms the inescapable obligation of reverence. Now, although many people struggle with prayer simply because they doubt that God likes them, there are probably just as many people who struggle, who fail to fully grasp his holiness. We have a notion of divine love, but it's devoid of divine sovereignty. Without knowing it, we've unhallowed the Father's name. And in losing the, what we might call the, the godness of God, we struggle with prayer because we fail to grasp the mind-blowing privilege of simply being in the presence of this living God. And it seems like what's possible, what I've witnessed in my own life, what I've seen in the church is a familiarity that maybe even breeds apathy until we can barely be bothered to try. Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard describes the lunacy of such over-familiarity. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' hat, straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. <laughs> That's a little strong for me. Uh, uh, and... But, 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 here's what, but here's what she's trying to say. The first Christians may not have donned crash helmets for sure, but they certainly understood the sovereignty of God in a way that we, I don't know, the way that we don't or maybe can't or maybe even won't. Consider all the incredible stories of the book of Acts or all of the uh, spontaneous and worshipful doxologies of the apostle Paul in his letters or the dramatic apocalypse of John in the book of Revelation and you quickly come to the conclusion that God was, their God that they saw was frankly bigger than ours. They knew how to kneel. They understood the fear of the Lord. The reverence he deserves and even the dreadful thing it can become sometimes as the writer of Hebrews says to fall into the hands of the living God. Our 21st century American convenience and consumer culture knows little of respect and reverence. Cynicism, skepticism, ridicule, and mockery have really been normalized in our social media, in our political dialogue, and our entertainment, and even in our families. But this idea of God's sovereignty is so important and must be settled if we are be to become people who pray. It's as if Jesus understands this when he surprises his disciples by addressing God with the familiarity of Father, which they wouldn't have done. Because 
he says father, but then he follows it with hallowed be your name, which is the balance, the weight, the anchor of God's great love for you and me. You see, love is never truly appreciated. It's never really activated or fully comprehended unless there is a reverence associated with it. There's no true love without true respect. That counts for marriage. That counts for parents and children. There's no true love without true respect. You can't disrespect someone and say you love them. Although many, a man in my office, in my counseling office, has tried to convince me that they love their wife, but they disrespect her. Or the other way around. I've heard it. I've seen it. There has to be this weight, this this heaviness, this reverence for loving someone that is part of this equation, the way to respond to unconditional, unrelenting, overwhelming, and life-redeeming love is to treat it with exceptional care, with precious reverence, and with extraordinary honor. That's what makes the best marriages. That's what makes the best parenting. That's what makes the best friendships. And so I want you to see this, that we honor and defend this name and we honor and revere this name and treat it as a treasure. We don't, we don't take advantage of his love. We honor it. That's kind of the, the point of the whole story in the prodigal son. You had a son who ran away and squandered everything and a son who worked his life as a slave and they both missed what was offered them. So hallowed be your name means to honor God with all your life, to carry his name, to reflect his nature, his character here in this earth because you're in his family. He's your dad. His blood flows through you and we represent him on this earth and there's something powerful about hallowing and revering his name. We love the unlovely. We share with those in need. We live with total integrity so that we can proclaim with confidence the good news of the kingdom. His name is on our life. Through the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. This is the same verse that Jesus spoke in the synagogue as one of his first statements. He was connecting with his father in that statement. Number two, trust, to hallowed be your name means to trust God with all your heart. To trust him with everything when you don't understand it. As God's children, we choose to trust him even though we don't understand what's happening. We surrender from a deep place inside of our hearts to the sovereignty of God when we experience the mystery of his ways or the hiddenness of his hand. And we feel like we're in a dark place. There's a moment where you've got to trust that he is the loving heavenly father that he says he is. And that's you reverencing and making his name this thing of holiness in your life so you never reject him or mistreat him. Honoring his name means that we believe that God our Father is for us and never against us and that he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that verse means if you take any suffering, any foolishness, any failure, any 
thing from your wounded past and you put it in God's hands, he'll begin to use it and shape it for your good and his glory. That's what he does. That's what makes him so good. But you gotta put it in his hands. Number three, to worship God with all your soul and strength. All of us have moments in our lives when we don't feel like worshiping, when we, our soul is shrouded with discouragement or depression or even darkness. We, we just don't have the strength to do it. But when we worship God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the emotions, regardless of the feelings, or maybe sometimes as a part of the circumstances, we bring our emotions to him and express them to him just like the psalmist did. You read through those psalms over and over again, you will find the reality of the struggle of life in those psalms and you will always see a little pivot point where the psalmist turns, where he turns toward God and says, but I will worship you. You'll see it over and over again if you read through the psalms. I want the band to come and we're gonna take a moment here and we're gonna worship together in this way. And as we do, I'd like you just to close your eyes and I'm gonna read to you a psalm that I think I want you to remember who you are. And I want you to worship God as you set him apart as special in your life. That he's worthy of worship, that he's worthy of, of the struggle, that he's worthy of everything that you have. Psalm 103, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Think about it. Just close your eyes right there. Right where you are, let me read it to you because he's commanding his own soul to praise God. I don't know what he's been through. I don't know what's going on in his life, but he, 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 he has the propensity here to say, Soul, time for you to worship the one who created you. He says, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not. He says, forget not, because it's so easy to forget all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, he will, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Father, thank you that you know who we are. You know what we've been through. You know where we are. And you know where we need to go. And so we look to you today. We look to you, Father. And we ask you to lead us by your love. As we hallow your name. As we worship your name we honor your name together. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11. 
See you next time.